did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know a contemporary take on the familiar story of Christmas? Would save our sons and daughters. We can all picture the scene from countless Christmas cards, with Mary and Joseph surrounded by farm animals, looking on as the newborn baby Jesus lies in the manger. This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. But when it comes down to the actual birth, the Bible doesn't tell us very much about it. In the Gospel of Luke, all we hear is, and she gave birth to a son. So that invites all sorts of speculation. What would it have been like for Mary, a young first-time mother, to give birth far away from home, in a barn or a cave, with no medical support? I'm Ray Duke, and for this Christmas edition of Things Unseen, we've invited two midwives into the studio to help us imagine what it might actually have been like to deliver a baby in those kinds of circumstances. Sue Jay is an independent midwife who has worked with the Amish in Pennsylvania, a very traditional Christian community who shun modern technology and live as farmers. And Ruth is an NHS midwife, but who's also worked in Somalia and Uganda. And I should say at this point, welcome to the studio. We are together, but socially distanced, so that might affect the way that we sound. But lovely to have you here um, and to be all together. Um, Ruth, let's, let's kick off with you. Most women in the UK would have their first baby in a hospital with doctors and midwives keeping a close eye, and yet most of them have their anxieties too. What questions do you find are at the forefront of a young first-time mother's mind when she goes into labour? Um, I think the main questions would be the, the fear of the unknown. Their perception of birth would probably be heavily influenced by the media. So they would see that it's quite a gory experience. They haven't maybe seen natural births. They may not have researched things properly. Um, and do you think they're scared by the actual prospect of giving birth? The actual prospect of giving birth? I would assume every woman is probably quite scared <laughs> of giving birth. <laughs> um, I don't think that's exclusive to young mums. Whether they're 15 or whether they're 50, going into labour is quite a scary, yes, a very normal feeling to feel. Sujay, working with the Amish, what would a typical birth experience have been like there for a young mother? People do start their families much younger than in this culture. Like, you know, most women are going to have, you know, between 8 and 15 children. In the Amish context, I often felt like there was something of a... Um, like they've kind of arrived, right? Like they, they're, they're stepping up into... This, this role and that role is part of what brings them closer to God because, you know, having children is, 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 a, is a gift from God. There isn't the same sort of expectation that we have in our culture around having a particular type of birth experience. And I think because they are farmers and used to being in their bodies, they maybe have more experience with pushing their bodies to limits. And, and, and that really is, you know, a lot of what birth is, is pushing your body to a limit. And I think what was very, very striking for me um, was I never came across a woman, either a first-time mother or, you know, or, or on later on, ha um, saying that they couldn't do it. So, yeah, but they've got a very different attitude to pain. And that's what I was saying about the physical component. Like, if you expect something is going to be hard work, and you've also got this idea of hard work being linked into your relationship with God. It's good pain. It's good pain. And it's also, it, you just do it. And Ruth, when a young woman in rural Somalia goes into labour, what help is there for her there? 
So in rural Somalia, there'll be traditional birth attendants. These are older women who've been trained throughout their life. There will probably be unqualified, unregulated people who are highly skilled, highly intelligent, but not necessarily registered and not necessarily regulated. And why are they so good, those birth attendants? They know that they need to be able to deal with a situation, whatever situation comes about, whether it's someone having an eclamptic fit which means that their blood pressure is too high, they need to be able to deal with that. The babies come in breech, which is bottom first. They need to be able to deal with that. For me, it's very easy to bleep the doctor on the on the telephone who's he's 20 seconds away. But for someone having a doctor six hours away, they're going to pick up those clinical skills and they're going to learn very, very fast about what to do. Mary gave birth on the road, as it were, on her way to Bethlehem. And Ruth, I know that you once helped a woman who came close to giving birth before she reached the hospital. What happened there? Could you tell us? Okay, so this story was was great. So there was a lady that we had call our labour ward and said, oh, I think my waters are gone, it's my fourth baby, and I think there's a foot hanging out of me. So we were all all a bit like, okay, you're talking very calmly, can you call the ambulance, can you get them to come and get you? It's an emergency, we need to see you as soon as possible. So about two hours go by and we don't see this lady. So maybe we assume that she's gone to another hospital. We call her mobile and she said, oh, I'm in the car park and I can't find you. I've got on the bus. I dropped my children to school and I've got on the bus. I didn't want to disturb the ambulance. Can you come and find me so that I can come up to the labour ward? So we rushed down, <laughs> find her just walking around, looking, looking lost. Rush her upstairs, take her into the first labour room available, scan her, the baby's OK. There is, in fact, a foot hanging out of her and she's put... A, sock on the foot to keep the foot warm <laughs> and we just applaud her we just think wow okay Amazing, and so you did deliver the baby I did not deliver a, the oh, baby you... <laughs> the baby had a cesarean okay <laughs> let's take a closer look at the story of Christ's birth as I said earlier we don't hear much about the actual process in the gospels but there is a text from the very early Christian church which never made it into the bible it's called the Protevangelium, or First Gospel of James, and it actually mentions Joseph going to find Mary, a midwife. Here's some of that story now, and then the Catholic writer Tina Beattie gives us her view on it. Halfway through the trip, Mary said to him, Joseph, help me down from the donkey. The child inside me is about to be born. And he helped her down and said to her, Where will I take you to give you some privacy, since this place is out in the open? He found a cave nearby and took her inside, and went to look for a Hebrew midwife in the country around Bethlehem. I think when we read these texts, we all have to be reading them on different levels. We should read them more like literature than history because they're not really telling history as we understand it today, where we're a rather sort of factual, rational culture. They're far more concerned with what does it all mean. And there is a story in the book of Exodus about how the Hebrew midwives have a very significant role to play in saving the people of Israel, I suppose. And that might be one reason why it's emphasised that Joseph went in search of one of his own people. But if you imagine a a young couple going off in these very frightening circumstances to do a a census far from home and she goes into labour and she's going to have the baby, it seems to me very credible that he would try and find somebody 
familiar, somebody who speaks her language and knows her customs to be with her. So we can read it on those different levels. What do you believe the birth of Christ would have been like? Oh, that's a very interesting question. You know, part of me says it would have been like a birth we might imagine this Christmas for those refugees locked outside Europe's borders, suffering and freezing and starving. I mean, it's, you know, Jesus was uh, an infant when his parents became refugees. But, you know, that experience of the child born into marginalisation, social and economic poverty, far from home, I think all those things are really important. Mary and Joseph had to flee with the baby soon after his birth, and being a refugee is still not much better now than it was 2,000 years ago. Ruth, you get refugees who are young, single mums coming through your hospital doors. What are they most often grappling with? Personally, from my own experience, I've looked after recently women from Albania, 18, 19-year-old Albanians who have been trafficked into the UK for sex work. One lady was telling me that she'd come at 19 years old from Albania, promised a cleaning job, and then just trafficked around the UK for six months, and then managed to seek help about eight months pregnant, came to our hospital and gave birth. Financially, they have nothing, but being able to sit in a one-room bedsit with a sink, shared bathroom, shared kitchen with 50 other people, all of whom probably don't speak your language, probably they may want to as well try to exploit you in this hostel and there you are with your baby feeling incredibly vulnerable bleeding postnatally trying to get to the bathroom at three o'clock in the morning when people are are smoking or taking drugs in the hostel is just an extremely challenging scenario for them to be able to navigate and do you find that those women lean on you much more than other women to be honest i don't think that they do i feel that the scenario that they've been through the situation, whether it's war or whether it's trafficked, they feel very closed. They feel ashamed of what they've probably been through. I don't find them needy in any way, shape or form. I find them quite quiet, quite reserved and quite shy, quite scared of medical professionals. They probably feel that the power imbalance there is on the health professional side and trying to give them that power back, trying to give them the options that are available to them is utterly vital. Um, Sujay, you work with a charity that supports pregnant asylum seekers and refugees. There are so many factors at play here, and a lot of it is kind of way before they're actually pregnant and having a baby. I mean, I remember when I was working in the hospital, and this this wasn't with a refugee, but it was with someone who didn't speak the language, and there was a translator. And luckily, one of the doctors spoke that language, and the translator was telling her that if she had an epidural, she would go to hell. And at the time, in the hospital where I worked, it was like, wow. And and what about teenage mothers? Because Mary would have been a teenager when she had Jesus. Um, A lot of the issues that I see in kind of, you know, women in our culture is because of babies getting into kind of funky positions. And that's because we sit at desks, we drive in cars, we sit on couches, we slouch, we lounge. You know, traditionally, we haven't done that. And again, the Amish women are in more of that traditional context um, where they are very physically active and strong. Now, if you're young, fit and healthy, you just have more energy. You know, five hours, good night's sleep after being up for a couple of days and they are Good to go again. To go. Yes. (laughs) And how about their faith? Does that impact things? Yeah, faith is really, really, really huge. Because if everything is God's will, 
And, and I mean that in the sense of like when people have, and this is true of all traditional cultures or more traditional cultures living on the land, like you have big families, but there's maybe a little bit more acceptance that not all babies make it. So you have to hold these two things in juxtaposition of remaining calm and keeping the mother calm, but also having at the back of your mind, you've got a short time frame in which to deliver this baby and also knowing everything that could go wrong. Yeah, and absolutely. That, that's the art of midwifery, finding that balance. That is one very important aspect. Like, you know, midwife comes from being with women. Like, that is the meaning. That is the meaning of the word midwife. And I think it's that. I think it's being able to walk alongside somebody and also be that sort of... It's like being a lighthouse in the storm. And it's that place of calm and knowledge. And what was the story you had of... Um, was it a breech baby, the snow, the dad... Shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia. It was. So this was a few years ago, and um, we had one of those epic snowstorms. I'm in the southwest of England. And we were around this client's due date, and uh, my mum was like, I think you should go and stay the night. And she's like, I just think you should. And I called my client, and I was like, listen, I think I should stay the night. And she's like, no, I'm fine. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to... Anyway, by the time I got there, it was full-on snow. You know, mother's my mother's intuition. And I was like, okay, this is good. Like, I'm here. And I went to sleep. And she woke me up in the middle of the night. And there is heavy snow. And it's really thick outside. And I'm thinking, okay, my second midwife is not... She's definitely not coming. And actually, in an emergency, we're not driving anywhere out of here. And the baby does the telltale signs when they're coming out. Like, really slow. The head was born really, really slowly. And I'm thinking, okay, so maybe the shoulders are stuck. Shoulders are stocious when the shoulders are stuck. And um, I start to run through all the manoeuvres that you're taught. You know, we do emergency skills and drills every year. And nothing's working. And I'm thinking inside, wow, this is it. This is, this is where it happens. Like the big, the big thing that we all are aware can happen. And I keep running through all the manoeuvres, and finally, (laughs) finally, the baby was born. There was no other complications. The baby didn't need resuscitation, and the mother didn't bleed, and I want to, like, laugh and cry and just kind of get this trauma out of me, Mm. but I can't because I'm there with his family. And anyway, a few days later, um, the dad said to me, he's like, you know, I don't know what was going on for you, but, you know, each time I looked at you, your face was so calm and... And obviously I couldn't share with him, but, you know, inside I was like, okay, that's really good to know that I have a poker face. (laughs) Because I was not feeling poker face at all. Um, But I'd never had a shoulder dissociate on my own. And I think it was that added piece of, like, the snow. It kind of felt film-like, you know. Yes. Um, Romantic, yet (laughs) terrifying. (laughs) Oh, well done for getting through that. And how do you go about guiding a woman through her birth? The first, a first-time mother, Ruth. There's quite a few women who come along, especially a young mum who thinks that they should be doing what the doctor or the midwife recommends. And we try and explain to them that actually it's not that way anymore, that um, we're not in the 1960s or 70s, even the 80s, and you can you can choose. And as long as you've been given the evidence and you've weighed up in your mind what you want to do, then they should be able to make that choice of what they want. It's not about telling them what to do, it's about supporting and sharing information. And you met traditional midwives while you were working in Somalia. Did you find that they approached a birth in the same way that you do? No. Um, it, 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 was, it was a culture of, this is what's recommended, this is what you should do, we know what's best for you. Um, 
And I, I would I would say that probably the women were happy to go along with that. There was not much pushback. Um, it, it was quite interesting explaining to them about a water birth, that their mind was blown, that someone would give birth in water. That was quite a interesting conversation I had multiple times with some of the midwives in Somalia that they just thought, what, what a waste of water. <laughs> their humour is very much like Brit's humour, sarcastic, dry. It was, it was quite an entertaining conversation to have about water birth. Let's go back now to the Gospel of James and to the birth moment there, which is told in an oblique way from Joseph's point of view. Joseph experiences the birth of Christ as a sort of blip in the cosmos where time stands still. Here's Tina Beattie again. While Joseph is out looking for the midwife, there's this miraculous moment when all of creation stands still and he speaks in the first person, describing how... I looked up to the peak of the sky and saw it standing still and I looked up into the air. With utter astonishment I saw it, even the birds of the sky were not moving. I saw sheep being driven along, and yet the sheep stood still. And I observed the current of the river and saw goats with their mouths in the water, and yet they were not drinking. Then, all of a sudden, everything and everybody went on with what they had been doing. So there's this sense that all of creation pauses, and I think we're invited to see this as the moment when the baby was born. So we don't ever see the actual event of the birth. We see Joseph's perspective when he's looking for the midwife. Then I saw a woman coming down from the hill country, and she asked, Where are you going, sir? I replied, I am looking for a Hebrew midwife. She inquired, Are you an Israelite? I told her yes. And she said, And who's the one having a baby in the cave? I replied, My fiancé. And she continued, She isn't your wife? I said to her, She is Mary, who was raised in the temple of the Lord. I obtained her by lot as my wife, but she's not really my wife. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Come and see. And the midwife went with him. As they stood in front of the cave, a dark cloud overshadowed it. Suddenly the cloud withdrew from the cave, and an intense light appeared inside the cave, so that their eyes could not bear to look. And a little later, that light receded until an infant became visible. He took the breast of his mother, Mary. Then the midwife shouted, What a great day this is for me, because I have seen this new miracle. The sleeping child you're holding is the In the Gospel of James, Mary gives birth miraculously, instantly and painlessly. And the idea that the birth of Jesus was painless for Mary still exists in some Catholic teaching. I asked Tina Beattie if all Catholics believe this. No, I mean, I, I think it's important to realise that Catholic teaching is one thing, but Catholics are as varied as any other human group. <laughs> and particularly with the emergence of feminism and women's voices, there's been a lot of questioning about this idea of Mary giving birth without pain and what does that really say about how the church regards the realities of childbirth. Um, for me, actually, again, there are two levels on this. I think this has certainly been used in a way that distances Mary from ordinary women's experiences. 
But I also think that it has sometimes been interpreted by women themselves and can be interpreted today as almost God's protest against the suffering that women endure in childbirth. I've had four children. I've nearly died twice in childbirth. And having grown up in Africa, I know a lot about maternal mortality and infant mortality. And for me, it's not necessary to say Mary suffered all that. I find hope and promise in the idea that somehow she has compassion and solidarity with women, but she herself doesn't have to experience that because she can become a symbol of God's promise and hope that this is not how God intends women's bodies to suffer and be used, if you like. So there's a lot of meaning I would take out of that as a woman who has given birth. But I don't want a bunch of celibate men telling me what this ought to mean for me. Let me put the question to our midwives in the studio here. A pain-free, miraculous and possibly instant birth the midwife Joseph had found didn't even need to intervene. What do you make to this part of the story, a pain-free birth? It's so individual, but I've certainly seen a very broad range of experience. And I think in terms of of pain-free, there was a very interesting study quite a few years ago looking at women's experiences of pain-free, like with an epidural, their satisfaction with a pain-free labour. And they rated much lower in terms of satisfaction of the overall birth experience. Now, obviously, if you've got like a very long labour, there is a epidurals, there is definitely a place for well-placed epidural. However, I don't think the goal of labour is about being pain-free because I think it's in our culture where we expect it to be pain-free. But actually, if you're able to find a way to work with the pain or with the intensity... You know, childbirth can be painful, but you don't have to suffer. Obviously, when it tips into suffering, that's a very, very, very different place. What about a natural pain-free birth, though? So not talking about an epidural, but actually, I don't know, something I used, uh, hypnobirthing techniques with both of my babies. I can't imagine having going through either of those labours without using that deep breathing and the relaxation, the visualisations. Do you think... Could Mary almost have been doing an early form of hypnobirthing that meant that she didn't experience pain in that way? Have you ever witnessed a sort of natural pain-free? That's exactly what I'm talking about, actually, is natural pain-free. I mean, most women who have babies with me don't have any pain relief. If you're really well supported and you're able to really let go into it and you've got loads of oxytocin coming and endorphins coming, as well as the pain messages going up to the brain, you, you get into an altered state of consciousness. It is an altered state of consciousness. When you feel anxious, you start to feel more pain. If you're not trying to get away from the pain, if you can go right into the centre of it, that is where you might have less pain. You sort of describe it as a spiritual experience, almost. I would say it is definitely, it's a spiritual experience. It's a sexual experience, just by the very anatomy. It's a rite of passage, particularly for the first one. But I don't think... Or I've never come across a woman who says that, you know, birth was not hugely transformative. And Ruth, your experience of a a pain-free birth, have you ever witnessed that? Uh, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, good for Mary. Um, But I guess it was someone else who wrote this this book of the Bible. I'm not a theologian, but um, I don't think there's a book of Mary from her own words. I would assume from Mary's situation, being away from your community being in a strange environment being afraid being a traveler being in a cave 
to get to that point of a pain-free, instant, miraculous birth seems to me personally impossible for Mary to have a pain-free labour. And I mean, good for her if she did, great. (laughs) I feel jealous. (laughs) And do most women now arriving at your hospital, do they ask for pain relief? Yeah, yeah. The vast Um, majority. The vast majority would have some sort of pain relief, whether it's paracetamol, whether it's gas and air, whether it's full-on epidural, the vast majority will, will opt for analgesia, yeah. So if you had arrived at the cave... Let's just imagine this now. Mary's just given birth. You walk in. What would you have done for her and her child? Um, I think they mentioned in the text that the baby was already breastfeeding, that she seemed quite happy and communicating well. And I just would have found out if she needed anything, find out if she needed somewhere warmer and cleaner to go than the cave, find out if there was somewhere else that she could rest, find out if Joseph needed anything. Births reveal a lot about relationships, don't they? I know that I certainly found that with my first-hand experience. Um, And Joseph couldn't have been a hands-on birth partner because under Jewish law, he wouldn't have been allowed to touch Mary once the birth was underway. Um, I just wonder what your experiences have been like, um, dads in the delivery room. It's tricky, and I always try to say this to clients, is like not all men are going to be that support. And for some women, because there's this expectation here in our culture that, you, that you know, your partner is going to be that support, you know, some men are just, just rubbish in the birth room. You know? And actually, if that expectation wasn't there to quite the same degree... You know, and often women themselves, especially for that first one, don't actually you don't know, know what you want until you're in it. Absolutely. And then how can your partner necessarily yeah, read your mind? Or... Yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's about availability to be present. And Ruth, I know you've assisted at some same-sex couples, them, them having their babies. Um, do you find, have women been better than, than male birth partners? Me personally, I've found that women are... Sorry, men. A, a superior at um, <laughs> supporting their, their female partners. Yeah. Um, whether it's a gay couple or whether it's their mum or their sister or their aunt who's come to look after them, I found them superior. And that's no disrespect to men at all because there's the majority of men, maybe bar one or two in my 13 years career, get super involved and they try their best as much as possible. But having that biology, I feel that... Women really deeply understand women. They really deeply understand knowing what is necessary in a physical scenario that is quite a vulnerable situation. And I think women are on that next level than than men. After Mary gives birth, there's a really quite shocking moment for her in the Gospel of James, where a woman called Salome, who's passing by, refuses to believe that a virgin has given birth and insists on checking. And the midwife left the cave and met Salome and said to her, Salome, Salome, let me tell you about a new marvel. A virgin has given birth, and you know that's impossible. And Salome replied, As the Lord my God lives, unless I insert my finger and examine her, I will never believe that a virgin has given birth. But once Salome actually insists on putting her finger inside Mary's body... Her hand withers and burns up because she was so disbelieving. So she begs for forgiveness and is healed again when she's told to reach her hand out to Christ. But the point of the story is that Mary was still a virgin even after the birth. And that's something the Catholic Church has held on to while the Protestant Church rejected this idea a long time ago. 
Tina Beattie now. Certainly the doctrine of her being ever virgin is one of the earliest of the beliefs about Mary and it may well come from the Protevangelium or certainly that idea was in the air when this text was written. Again though there's a theological illusion I think you know when Christ rises the tomb and the womb Christ emerges from a virgin womb he's born from a virgin womb and then he rises from the womb of the virgin earth I mean these were picture images that the earliest theologians played with. And just as Thomas refused to believe that Christ was really risen and had to put his finger into the wound in Christ's side, so there's a kind of allusion to that, I think. Yeah, that's a nice mirroring. This woman putting her finger into Mary's body to prove the virgin birth. They're miracles. And, you know, this touching has a sort of relationship to that. Midwives, what do you make of that part of the story where a doubting woman feels she has to examine Mary's body to be sure she can believe what's happened? So I'm worried about sepsis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, obviously, when I, when I, you know, that's, it is very, very shocking. And at a practical level, like if you've never felt a cervix before and you've never actually done that, like I know when I was first learning, like everything just feels squishy. I guess maybe there's blood on her hand and that's what she's looking for. I don't know. My mind immediately goes like, how would she know what she's feeling? Um, I think she's looking to see if a hymen is intact. I think that's the text expands on that. Yeah, it doesn't. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, Shocking. Shocking, I say. (laughs) Thoughts, Ruth? (laughs) I think there's some confidential issues going on here. (laughs) Um, why on earth is Salome's any business of who's given birth and why and how? Um, the midwife is bang out of order to discuss this with a passerby. Bang out of order for even letting Salome near the Virgin Mary. And there is no evidence that whether Hymen is present or not shows that someone is a virgin. It's a very outdated belief and quite damaging. Night and day, really, from how things are at present where I know with my birth six months ago every time the midwife wanted to examine me she asked for permission and that was to get the baby born never mind I mean the thought of being touched there yeah after you've given birth there's a real kind of invasion um just yeah quite quite horrifying how do you feel about women's perhaps their refusal to be examined whilst they're in labour to to kind of work out how many centimetres they are dilated or women who refuse induction, um, of which I am sort of one of them, so be careful what you say, but um, do you th- are women allowed, do you think, to have to be empowered to make those decisions? I work in quite a high-risk hospital. Um, there are some extreme comorbidities in the hospital that I work in, and we do need to counsel these women thoroughly, whether it's heart conditions, whether it's HIV, whether it's issues with the baby... But we need to know that it's a recommendation, not allowing someone to do something or not allowing someone to do something. I think a recommendation should be given and the reasons why we're recommending it and the evidence that supports that recommendation. And then the woman to decide for herself, because we live in a society where women can choose. We, we've had the vote for a long time now, and I feel that maybe this is, this is just as important as having a vote. So you would personally always want permission to be granted from the woman before you were to examine her? for sure. Or arrest me, lock me up if I don't ask for permission, (laughs) even if it's something as basic as doing a blood pressure. 
Um, yes. It's not an invasive procedure to do a blood pressure, but surely we should be asking permission to do that as well. We're touching someone else. It's assault if we're touching someone else and doing something to someone else without their permission. So what do we make of Mary in the Gospel of James? Is she any more than a symbol of female humility? For Tina Beattie, it depends very much on how we read texts like this. With texts like this, we must give free play to our imagination. We must allow ourselves to be inspired to read, read differently and read anew and bring the questions our generation brings to these texts. I think there's a huge difference between being obedient to God and being obedient to humankind. And Mary is absolutely obedient to God, and that makes her profoundly disobedient to the rules of patriarchal domination. You know, she agrees to have a child outside marriage. She risks being stoned to death for adultery. You know, this young pregnant woman goes rushing off to her pregnant cousin Elizabeth in very hostile countryside. That's not the action of a, a young woman sitting at home knitting booties. You know, she's a hugely courageous daring, radical woman of God. So I think we can read her as this woman, not liberated in the modern feminist sense, but as a woman who knew her own place in the world, who knew her calling. Ruth and Sujay, listening to it today, what do you take away from this ancient version of the birth story of Christ with a midwife present? Has it made you think any differently? Um, I, I love the idea that Mary is not this meek and mild woman that the male writers of the Bible portray her as. I love the idea that she has a strong faith in religion and that she, I, I love what they just said about her not conforming to her society and her culture, but to be able to have a strong will and be able to know what she wants. I love the idea of having a biblical role model as a woman now, whether or not you're religious now or not. And to look at Mary as someone who was determined to do what she wanted to do. And I, I, love, I love that idea of Mary. Sujay, this strident, brave Mary, has it reframed her? Yeah, it's made me think about the whole story really differently. And I think I never thought about what it would be like from Mary's perspective. But this notion of calling, and that was really present with the Amish because of their strong faith. Um, you know, if you've got a calling and you're connected to God like that, that's you're in a whole other realm of, 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 of meaning and also what you can stand and what you can face. Because yeah. actually you're not you're not alone and there is a there is a sense and it's one of the things sometimes in our modern world where we are so devoid of that, most people. Um and meaning and trust and faith is so important for us as human beings. We need we need meaning. We need trust. Thank you, Ruth and Sujay, for telling us your stories and for helping us to imagine what giving birth to Jesus might have been like for Mary such a long time ago. I'm Ray Duke, and this Christmas edition of Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. Let's leave the last words to Tina Beattie, who sums up what the birth of Christ means to her. This is a story of God born into poverty, rejection, misery and suffering to identify with that very real condition of being human today and in all ages but also a God who comes to redeem all that from within and give us hope and I think we can hold both those things He's the great I am.